Well, the Bible's account of the fall of man, which is the title for our lesson this morning, stands in direct opposition and contrast to the Darwinian theory of evolutionism. Rather than teaching that man began as an insignificant microscopic piece of protoplasm in some primeval stagnant water and has evolved slowly but surely upward, the Bible informs us that man was created in less than one day and that he began, so to speak, at the top of the ladder in that he was fully perfect and mature in every single aspect of life. However, in a matter of seconds, in fact, the time that it takes to sink teeth into a piece of fruit, man fell to the bottom, and he has been sinking lower and lower with the passing of time. In other words, the Bible clearly teaches that man has devolved from the perfection that he was at the beginning. He certainly has not evolved. The principle found in the Bible is that evil men wax what? Worse and worse, which is quite the contrary from the thought behind evolutionism that man is becoming better and better. Furthermore, the Bible's account of man's fall and the dilemma regarding his sin and, and death, a consequence of sin, repudiates all contemporary theories regarding environment. Modern philosophy attempts to attribute all the ills of mankind to environment. We've been hearing that for years. But that's nothing but an excuse to attempt to cover up man's depraved, sinful heart, his sinful nature. We've been told for centuries that if legislatures would only organize to clean up the environment, that then men would be able to obtain their full potential, that everything would be fine and dandy. However, what do we learn from the scripture? We learn that that is not true at all. Man has already been tested in the most perfect ideal environment possible, the Garden of Eden, where everything was very good. And even in that ideal utopian environment, what happened? He fell. He succumbed to temptation and to sin. Man was created to be a responsible being. He was to be responsible to obey his creator. You know, just sort of out of natural love for his creator, the one who gave him everything, who gave him life and everything else that he could possibly ever have desired. Man was not an independent creature because he did not create himself. That's the only way you could really be independent is if you created yourself like God. So man owed his very existence to his creator. As a responsible being, then, man was to subject himself willingly to God. And God impressed that fact upon man in a very simple way, which even, you know, a child could understand, really. He gave man only one restriction in an otherwise unlimited um, abundance of liberties. Remember, he could eat of every tree of the garden freely, except for one tree. The command, therefore, was an emphasis of the fact that man, as a responsible created being, was subject to his creator. He was given freedom of choice in the matter. But his choice, when you think about it, really should have been a very easy one. You know, to just obey the one who loved you so much that he provided everything for you, who obviously loved you so much, man, you know, why it would, you would think it'd be very easy to obey somebody like that, to obey the creator who loved him and placed him in such a wonderful environment, and also who severely warned him of the consequences of disobedience. So you'd think it would have been a very simple matter just to obey that one simple restriction. Yet, first Eve, who was tempted and deceived by the serpent, Satan, and secondly, Adam, who was not deceived, but who deliberately sinned, failed the test. First Eve, then Adam. And consequently, we find ourselves in the predicament that we are in. The entire universe, except for the third heaven, the entire universe is subject to decay, sin, and death. Now, in our lesson last week, we had looked at the fall of Satan, the fall of Lucifer. Today, we will look at 
the fall of man. Last week we learned about the temptation of Eve. Today we will talk about the tragedy of Adam because it was Adam's fall into sin which resulted in the curse of sin and death which affect the entire universe, including the human race and all, all animals, all creation, even the earth itself. So our outline for, we're just going to look at three verses today because these are such important verses. We'll look at verses 6, 7, and 8. In verse 6, we will talk about disobedience in Eden. In verse 7, we'll look at the discovery of evil. Adam and Eve discovered something, and what was it? (laughs) Evil. And then in verse 8, we'll look at their departure from Elohim. So we will begin with verse 6, disobedience in Eden. And first of all, we'll talk about Eve's disobedience and then Adam's disobedience. But I'm just going to read the whole verse right now. Verse 6 of chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband... Notice it says husband. They were married. God had instituted the, um, he had already given the institution of marriage because it says husband there as it said wife back in chapter 2 verse 24. So she gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Eve had made a series of mistakes, hadn't she? This is what we talked about last time. First of all, she was in the wrong place. She was where? By, somewhere by the forbidden fruit. Um, And secondly, she was alone. She was without the right person. And I know, I just talked to someone, there is a little controversy about whether Adam was with her or not. It's because it says there in verse 6, and Adam, and with her husband with her. Um, Although most commentators say that not originally Adam was not there. And I tend to go along with that. Because of the fact, we'll be talking about this, because of the fact that Adam was not deceived, and it would be very difficult to explain if he was not deceived, why he would let his wife be deceived. Um, And so I I would just tend to say, and I have no way of being dogmatic about this, but I would say that after the conversation between Satan and Eve ceased in in verse 5, that somehow or another, Eve either left the scene and came back to stare at the tree further, or that she stayed there and then Adam wandered up to be with her. That's the only way I can really explain it. All right, so she was in the wrong place. She was alone, perhaps, without the right person. Third, she did not flee the moment that the strange talking serpent cast doubt on God's word. And by the way, when she misquoted God, you would think that if Adam had been there with her, that he certainly would have corrected her. And also when Satan totally um, denied what God had said about ye shall surely not die, I can't help but think Adam who had this fantastic brain, you know, who could easily memorize things, he would have said, oh, no, that's not what God said at all. So it would be very difficult to picture Adam there with Eve when she went through that whole conversation with Eve, with Satan. So she didn't flee when the serpent started casting doubt on God's word, and she certainly should have gotten out of there right, right then and there. But instead, fourth, she dialogued with him. And that's another no-no. You do not dialogue with Satan unless it's to say, thus saith the Lord, and accurately use your weapon, the, the word of God, you know, quote it correctly. Or if it's to say, what else? Get thee behind me, Satan. All right? And then she altered God's word so that what she said actually limited God's goodness she eliminated the words freely and um, what was the other word? Every, yes, freely and every. And then she exaggerated his prohibition by adding the words, neither shall ye touch it, which God had never said anything about touching the fruit, and she lessened his penalty. He said, ye shall surely die. She said, lest ye die. And then, six, she again did not flee when Satan flatly denied God's word. When he said, ye shall not surely die, that was a direct denial of what God had said. 
And all of this, all these previous mistakes, caused her then to hear Satan distort and demean God's character in verse 5, which tempted her even further by causing her to wonder if God wasn't selfishly withholding something from her, which would bring her greater personal fulfillment. So because of this series of errors on her part, Eve had had allowed her mind and her emotions to be very strongly influenced by the serpent's fiery doubts of, uh, I mean, fiery darts of doubt and distortion and discontentment. He shot that arrow at her, discontentment and also pride. So after Satan ceased from talking to Eve and perhaps even left the scene, we don't know if he stayed there, whatever, if he did stay there, he was quiet from here on. But at any rate, Eve continued to gaze at the forbidden fruit tree. And as she did so, she was then taking the next step in the temptation process because she was looking and desiring and lusting for that which was forbidden. The longer she looked at that forbidden fruit, the more she craved it, the more she desired it and lusted for it. Actually, verse 6 speaks of a threefold appeal which was made to each part of of Eve's human constitution. First of all, she saw that the tree was good for food, right? And this means that it was an appeal to her bodily senses. It was a temptation regarding the lust of the flesh, exactly. And then she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, which was an appeal to her emotions, to her aesthetic senses, which have their seat in the soul. So this was a temptation regarding the lust of the eyes. And last, she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Because, see, that was the little implication that Satan had planted in her mind in verse 5 when he said, when you eat of it, you shall be as gods. So she saw that the tree was desired to make her wise, which was a definite appeal to her intelligence, which has its center in the spirit, a desire for knowledge and spiritual insight. So this was a temptation regarding the pride of life. So Eve was now walking by sight. She was looking, right, at the tree. She's walking by sight and not by her faith in the words of God. And Genesis 3.6 finds a perfect parallel then in the warning which we find in 1 John 2.16, where John wrote, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, these are the things of the world. So they are not the things upon which Christians, believers, should be, be focused. We should not have our focus on the things of the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, things that, uh, that tempt our egos and self. And this same line of temptation here was also used on the Lord Jesus in, during his uh, wilderness temptation. Satan's temptation to the Lord to command the stones to turn into bread was an appeal to his what? His flesh, the lust of the flesh. Then Satan's offer to give Christ all of the, you know, the possessions of the world and all the, all the kingdoms of the world, that was an appeal to the covetous and aesthetic emotional desires. It was lust of the eyes. You know, see this, all this world, it can be yours. And then his, um, the tempter's appeal... When he offered Christ instant worldwide recognition as the holy angels would catch him if he would just jump from the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, that would certainly gain everybody's attention and jump from there and then the holy angels would come and catch him. And he, therefore, he, wouldn't, he could be king without going to the cross. Well, that was, an, that was a, a temptation to spiritual pride, the pride of life. But Christ, unlike Eve, Christ overcame all these temptations 
of the evil one by reminding both himself and Satan of the commandments and the promises which are found in God's word. However, instead of doing the same thing, Eve questioned and doubted and altered, and at last she chose to reject God's word in favor of the tempting appeal to her body, soul, and spirit. So Eve's look turned to a lust. And that's a danger, isn't it, that all of us face. Our looks can so easily turn into lusts, which is why the scripture gives us so many warnings about the eyes and what the eyes look at, what they behold, because the eyes are gates to the soul, aren't they? So we need to do as Job did. Good old Job. He said he made a covenant with his eyes. That's what we need to do. We need to make a covenant with our eyes and what they look at, whether it's some of the garbage on television or the wrong kinds of magazines that we look at, the wrong kinds of books we might read, um, if it's a, a, a man that we might be looking at, a man other than our husband, if it's things in the stores that we look at and lust for things that we don't need and that we can't afford. So we should what, what should we do with our eyes when we see things like that? Safest thing is just to turn away and not look at them. Or whether it's food, <laughs> that hits home, doesn't it? Or if it's something like alcohol, pills, drugs, or whatever it might be. The Bible says, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. So we really, really have to watch what we look at. Because lust, looks can so easily turn to lust. Well, as Eve continued to look, she kept thinking about Satan's words, probably. That her eyes would be opened and that she would be as God. And so the scripture, we find, is also full of warnings about the pride of life, which was the cause in the first place for the fall of Lucifer, who became Satan. And it was the temptation that he used most successfully with Eve. I think that was the one thing that got her the most, was that her eyes would be open and she would be as God. For example, we have in the scripture, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And we have this, If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth what? He knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. Another one, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. That's Proverbs 3.7. Another one, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. And that's exactly what we find in this story, this true story. Another one, pride goeth before, what? Destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And that's just a few of the scriptures we have warnings against pride in the Bible. Well, now that sin had already taken place, in Eve's heart, all that remained, it, re, remained was for her to actually commit the sin outwardly. Her look had turned to a lust, and next her fleshly desires turned to a fatal decision. The next step in the temptation process of Eve occurred when she actually took the forbidden fruit and ate it. You see, she had already begun to sin inwardly in her thoughts and in her heart, and now she was sinning outwardly. And the reason I say she was sinning inwardly is because the Lord Jesus Christ, whoops, forgot to put that up there, for honor is humility. That's warning against the pride of life. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus had said, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already, where? In his heart. So Eve had already committed sin in her heart. 
She had already questioned God's commandments. She had already doubted his punishment. She had forgotten his goodness. She had harbored some negative thoughts about his character in, you know, believing that perhaps he was holding, withholding something beneficial from her. And also, she had already lusted after the forbidden fruit in her flesh and, in her, and with her eyes and in her pride of life, with her ego. But when she actually reached up and plucked the fruit off the tree and ate it, then she openly and outwardly disobeyed God's word. Actually, she not only disobeyed his word, she rebelled against it. She ignored it. She rejected it, and she opposed it. She sinned, didn't she? She sinned. And sin is disobedience to God's word. That's exactly what she did. She went ahead and she did exactly what God had told her not to do. We learn then from Eve, who is the first mother. You know, we're all related. Every one of us are related in this room. Because our first mother was, was Eve. So this is what Mama did to us. <laughs> And Papa, too. We learn from Eve that it is extremely difficult to turn away from temptation and sin when we go to places we should not go. Places where temptation is going to be right there in front of us. And particularly if we are alone when we are facing those temptations. And we should never permit suggestive thoughts to enter our minds. You know, we should never allow doubts about the authorship or the authority or the accuracy of God's word to take root in our minds. We should never remain in a tempting situation, but we should flee at the first possible opportunity. And, you know, this could mean if you're in a church that that doubts God's word, and that says things against God's words, well, like, well, you know, this isn't really inspired, and this is just Paul's opinion, you really shouldn't remain there. You should flee from situations like that, because after a while, those temptations will take root in your mind, just as we see it happen with Eve. The longer we remain, the more we will think about whatever the temptation is, the enticement, until we are convinced you know, as she was with the fruit, she was got convinced that she certainly she just couldn't go on without it. She just had to have it. If we put ourselves in the presence of forbidden fruit, there is no way to keep from thinking about that forbidden fruit. Right? Just like the example of a piece of chocolate cake, if that happens to tempt you, like it does me, with nice thick frosting on it. And if you just sit there and it's in your presence and you can You can't help but, you know, think about it. It's playing with fire, and fire burns. So Eve learned very quickly that not only did her look become a lust, but her choice then became her chain. He that committed sin is the slave of sin, it says in John 8, 34. So Satan had won his first human slave. Eve. And then his final aim was to then use his new slave as a seducer. Her choice became her chain, her look became a lust, and Satan's sane, a slave, became a seducer. Eve had looked, she had taken, and she had eaten, but her next act was Satan's greatest accomplishment, because what did she do next? She gave. The fallen woman was now a tool in the hands of Satan to attempt to ensnare her husband. The final step in temptation and sin is leading others to sin. There's something, seems to be, and I I know it's true, something irritating about goodness and purity in other people to those who are not good and pure. If you're living a a godly life and your light is so shining before men, those men and women who are in darkness, really, you irritate them. They don't like to be around you because your light is exposing their darkness. The light of another person rebukes the sinner's 
darkness making him or her feel inferior and dirty and uncomfortable. I know after Frank and I got saved, well, I was saved five years before he was, no, eight years before he was, but I wasn't living, you know, I was living the carnal, fleshly Christian life. But when he got saved and I totally surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, all of a sudden, all of our old friends did not want to be around us anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was like overnight, we were not invited to anything anymore, which is, you know, praise the Lord. But anyway, so they become uncomfortable and they feel dirty. So there is an attempt then to drag the other individual down to the lower level. So Eve felt impelled to get Adam to participate with her in the same sin. All of a sudden, you know, her eyes were open and she saw that she was dirty and she didn't want to be there alone. So she tried to get Adam to participate in her sin. So she gave him the forbidden fruit and he to did what? He too ate. It's amazing how very simply stated this enormously important event is presented to us in the scripture. Look at it at the end of verse 6. Four words, and he did eat. It doesn't even take a whole verse there to tell us about Adam's sin, and yet what happens because of Adam? In Adam we all die. That's why there's death. That's why there's funerals. Because he did eat. God sees Adam as the head of the human race, which is the old creation. So when Adam sinned, we sinned in him because he is our head just as he was Eve's head. And through Adam, we all suffer the consequences of sin and death. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, that just isn't fair. I mean, why should we suffer for what one man did? That's not fair. Well, you know what? <laughs> it's not fair that another man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam or the last Adam that he being the head of the new creation, that it was through his righteous act of dying and shedding his blood, sinless blood on the cross, that all men can have free righteousness imputed to them and eternal life. So that's not fair. You know, if you say, well, it's not fair that in one man we all die. Well, it's not fair either that in one man we can all have life. And if you want to talk about fairness, you know what would have been fair? It would have been fair if as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God struck them dead. And there was never a human race to begin with. And you and I wouldn't even be here. So let's not talk about being fair. Because if he had really done what he had said, he could have struck them dead right there and then on the spot. And that would have been the end of all of us. Not even, there wouldn't have been a beginning to any of us, much less an end. So uh, even though sin and death, which were the product of the first Adam, are still reigning in this world, we still live in a cursed world, yet grace and righteousness are also reigning through Jesus Christ. So that's the good news. The ba bad news is that we live in a sin-cursed world. But the good news is that we also live in a world where grace and righteousness are reigning through Christ. So faith in the Lord Jesus moves us from our position in the first Adam, who's the head of the old creation, and on into Christ, the last Adam, who is the head of the new creation. When you are in Christ, you are a new creature, you're a new creation. The fall resulted not only from disobedience to God's command, but from a violation of God's ordained uh, roles for man and woman. Eve was not created by God to assume the position of ultimate responsibility. So when she stepped out from under the umbrella of protection and leadership of Adam, she was vulnerable, wasn't she, as, as we learn? She was easily deceived, and she fell. Women have a nature that makes us more receptive to deception because I guess we just tend to believe people easier. You know, I, I think it's because we 
We look for the good in people more maybe than men. Men are more alert to look for the, the evil, and I think we tend to look for the good, and so we're more easily deceived. When Adam, however, then violated his leadership role by following Eve, even though he was not deceived, which we're told in 1 Timothy 2.14. I want you to all look at that sometime during this morning's conversation so you see what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived. But when he violated his leadership role, the perversion of God's intended order was complete. You know, Satan had been successful in totally reversing the roles, woman taking the lead, and man following, which is not the way it should be. Now, in saying that Adam was not deceived, this doesn't mean that Adam was less guilty than Eve or that Eve was more deficient than Adam. Even though Adam was not deceived by Satan as Eve had been, yet Adam still willfully chose to disobey God. And as the head of the human relationship, he bore the ultimate responsibility. So this then is why the Holy Spirit has inspired the New Testament writers to relate the fall of man to who? Adam or Eve? To Adam. It's attributed to Adam's sin and not to Eve's sin because Adam was the head. He was the one who had ultimate responsibility. Now, there has been a lot of speculation as to why Adam chose to eat the forbidden fruit. Because we are told in that passage, some of you have looked up, 1 Timothy 2.14, that Adam was not deceived. That's clear. That's in the scripture. He was not deceived. This must mean that Eve could not have used with him the same line of temptation which the serpent had used with her. Now, you know, some have said that Eve might have said something like this to Adam. She might have said, oh, Adam, it's okay. I've eaten the fruit, and look, I'm still here. I, sh I did not surely die, as God had said. So go ahead. Oh, it's delicious. Go ahead, have a bite, because now you can know for sure that you won't die either. However... If Adam had succumbed to that line of reasoning, then he would have been just as deceived as Eve. And the scripture tells us he was not deceived. Why would Adam, who was not deceived into eating the forbidden fruit, why would he deliberately take it from his wife and eat it? I mean, I've asked people all week long about this, and I, it's been amazing how many different answers I have gotten. Some have said, well, it's because he wanted to be like God. But he, it says he wasn't deceived, and that was Satan's deception. He wasn't deceived. He knew he wouldn't be like God. So the answer actually is not provided for us in the Scripture. We are not told why he did it. And you all look disappointed because you thought I was going to give you an answer. <laughs> I am. The answer is not given to us in the scripture unless it is given to us by way of the fact that Adam is a type of Christ. He is a prophetic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. I'm not making that up. He is in the scripture over and over again. He is said to be that. Now let's think of some of the ways. Adam is a type of Christ in that he was the head of the human family. You know, he's the first of the whole earthly family, as Christ is the head of God's family. Christ is the first of the heavenly family, all who will go to heaven, because he is the first fruits of the resurrection, which we're getting ready to celebrate soon. Now, our bodies are made in the likeness of the first Adam, but in the new creation, we will be like who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam. We've already seen uh, a couple weeks ago that also Adam's deep sleep uh, to have a wife, you know, when, when God formed a wife from Adam's side, that that was a picture type of Christ's death, 
and his pierced side from which God has formed a bride or a wife for Christ, the church. And the scripture even identifies for us the fact that Adam and Eve are a prophetic type, a picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his church. You can read all about that in Ephesians chapter 5. So it is not unscriptural for me to stand up here and say to you that Adam is a picture, he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So could it be then that that when Adam beheld Eve with the forbidden fruit in her hand, realizing what she had already done, that he deliberately and knowingly became a partner in her sin so that he might partake of her punishment, not leaving her to face God's judgment alone, and so that he might continue to have her as his own. Otherwise, they would have been separated. And God might have had to take another rib out of Adam and make another wife. I don't know. (laughs) I think Adam would have run out of ribs because I think every wife probably would have eventually sinned. But Christ loved the church. We know that his bride. And what did he do? He willingly gave himself for her. He became sin for her, didn't he? He came under the curse of sin for her. Christ took upon himself willingly the form of a servant, and although perfectly sinless, just like Adam, yet he purposely and he willingly did become sin for us, so that he might have us with him forever so that we might not be separated from him. So he partook of our judgment. In fact, he took our judgment in our place. Is that exactly what Adam did for Eve? Who does the, who does the fall get blamed on? Poor Adam <laughs> and not Eve. Adam, although perfectly sinless, purposely and willingly partook of sin. Even though he may not have realized it, yet... He did actually take the blame for sin, because as the head of the human family, it is through Adam that all men die, and not through Eve. Now, a complaint against this view, a complaint against it, is that it, some have said, well, it makes Adam's sin appear to be somewhat noble. However, by deliberately choosing to sin so that he could be with Eve rather than to remain with God and to obey God, that is not noble. It is still inexcusable sin because he was choosing a created being over the creator. He was willfully disobeying God's commandment and, in, and he was doing his own thing, even if it was for love. So just because Adam might serve as a type of Christ in certain areas does not mean that every single aspect of his life corresponds to Christ. Types can never, you know, whenever you have a type of Christ or a type of the Antichrist or a type of the church, you can never carry a type all the way through completely. There's just certain aspects which are pictures of other things. In fact, we will find that Adam certainly does not present a picture of type, uh, a picture of Christ in the next scene where he's actually running from God and trying to cover himself and then blaming Eve. You know, because once he ate, he was a fallen, sinful creature. And so he ceases to be a type of Christ. Yet it may well be that Adam's purposeful sin for Eve's sake is the explanation for why 1 Timothy 2.14 does tell us that he was not deceived. And I want to add to this thought by quoting from Dr. M. R. DeHaan in his book, which is called Portraits of Christ in Genesis. He says this, quote, Adam deliberately, willingly, and with full knowledge of the consequence, took the fruit from Eve's hand and did eat. He had stooped to her level in order to save her by becoming the only one who could bring forth the seed of the woman, the Redeemer. Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. He knew the full consequences of his act. He knew that it meant his death. But it was the only way to save his beloved bride. And this salvation would be by, bearing the, by the bearing of a child. Adam was the only one who could bring this about. So Paul, in 1 Timothy 2.15, if you look at the next verse, 
after it says Adam wasn't deceived, it says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Eve must have a seed, and only Adam's love for her made this possible, but it meant his death. In all of this, Adam was a type of Christ. And it says this in Romans 5.14. Listen. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, or from Adam to the law, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude, or in the same way, of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's what it says in the scripture, that Adam was a figure or a type of him who was to come. Who's him who was to come? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Adam's sin was different than every other person's sin ever since. We all sin because we are sinners. But Adam, he became a sinner deliberately so as to share in the sin of his wife. And in this, you see, in this fact, he was a figure or a type of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ also loved his bride, the church, and he willingly gave himself up for her. His bride, of course, we all make up, if you're truly born again, we all make up his bride, the church. We also have been or had been deceived by the enemy, Satan, hadn't we? And we had become alienated from God just as Eve. However, the difference is, the difference between Adam and Christ is that Adam sinned in order to save his bride. And this was deliberate disobedience to God the Father. The second Adam, however, never sinned, and he never disobeyed God the Father. So although what Adam did was actually a figure or a type of Jesus Christ willingly dying to redeemed fallen sinners, it doesn't mean that Adam's sin was in any way whatsoever noble. His sin, as I said, was inexcusable. It was even more inexcusable than Eve's sin, because Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Yet, either way, both of them did what? (laughs) Both of them sinned. Both partook of the forbidden fruit of which they had strictly been told by God not to eat. And both, therefore, began to immediately experience the consequences of their sin. They both made a choice. They both made a serious wrong choice, regardless of what the reasons behind their choices might have been, and mankind has suffered ever since. Well, as the serpent had promised Eve, their eyes were open. However, she and Adam did not acquire wisdom as God, did they? Or as God's. The word is Elohim, so you can say God's or God, because it's the plural for God. But instead, they acquired a knowledge of things such as bad things, such as uh, sin, uh, guilt, shame, nakedness, evil. They learned about the difference between good and evil, as Satan had said. But it wasn't certainly a, a good thing to learn. And they learned it the hard way. They learned it by experience. Dr. Harold Wilmington says this. He says, quote, instead of recognizing the evil from the summit of the good, they now must realize the good from the abyss of evil. And he says, often experience is not the best teacher, for sometimes the tuition is just too expensive. And that certainly was the case with them. All right, let's look, secondly, at the discovery of evil, verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Instead of having their eyes open to all the great wisdom and knowledge which belongs to God alone, you know, the divine trinity, Elohim, Adam and Eve were suddenly overcome with a deep sense of guilt and shame. They did indeed receive something that they had not had before, but they also lost something that they had had. They had exchanged innocence for guilt. You know, innocence is a state of having no knowledge of evil. 
When the scripture says here that their eyes were opened, it means that they now had a conscience which told them that they were guilty, and their conscience now filled them with great shame over what they had done. Their eyes were opened to see their wrongdoing and their fallen condition. In the remainder of this chapter, we are going to find that there were seven consequences of their sin. Shame, which we read about here in verse 7. Then guilt and fear, verse 8. Alienation from God, verse 9. There was a division in their relationship with one another, verses 10 through 13. Then they faced judgment from God, verses 14 to 19. And death, verse 19 speaking of their spiritual death, and of course they immediately also began to die physically. And then in verses 22 to 24, we learn about their separation from perfection when they are um, expelled, thank you, expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now the first thing that Adam and Eve realized was what? That they were naked. And this probably refers to two truths. For one thing, it would mean that their clothing of innocence and perfection were stripped from them. Obviously, when the scripture tells us that their eyes were opened, it doesn't mean their physical eyes, because we know they saw from the moment that they were created. Instead, what does it speak of? It speaks of the eyes of their minds and hearts, their spiritual eyes, their conscience. Their conscience was for the first time activated because they had now violated it. When they sinned, a radical change occurred within their hearts and minds. They knew things were somehow or another not the same, that something had gone terribly wrong. They no longer felt innocent and perfect, and they had this new awful feeling, which is called guilt. We all know all about it, don't we? Because they had never experienced it. It was something brand new, guilt. And they had another awful feeling, which was called shame. Without any doubt whatsoever, they both knew that they had done wrong. They had disobeyed God, and now they, were ev- now they knew evil. At the same time, they really understood how good was the good which they had had, and now they had forfeited. Sin had stripped them naked. They were no longer perfect. They were guilty of rebelling against God. They were sinful, not sinless. Where they had known peace, now they felt confusion and disturbance. They were uneasy in their spirits. Where they had felt secure, now they felt extremely insecure, as we'll see when they run from God. Where they had known perfect comfort, now they were restless. Where they had known perfect goodness, now they felt bad and guilty. Where they had felt clean, now they felt dirty. Where they had known perfect joy, now they felt miserable. Where they had had perfect love with one another and with God, now they felt rejected and shameful before one another and also before God. Where they had known perfect strength, now they felt very weak. It was a bad exchange, wasn't it? Secondly, the nakedness of Adam and Eve also speaks, of course, of their physical nudity. The clothing of God's glory was stripped from them. Now, remember, Adam and Eve had been created in the image and in the likeness of God himself, and God is light, we're told in 1 John 1, 5. And we're told in Psalm 104, verse 2, that God covers himself in a garment of light. It was the light and the glory of God which Christ allowed um, to shine through him, to, to shine through his flesh when he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, where we're told that his face, you know, shone like the sun and even his clothing was as white as light itself. So since Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God, this may have included, at least to some degree, the fact that they too were covered in some of the glory and radiance of God's being. Perhaps this glory of God even dwelt within them and shined outward, you know, from them. All right, the death of the Spirit then, 
when they died, you know, as soon as they ate of the forbidden fruit, they, they died spiritually. So their spiritual death within them could have resulted in the light of God's glory within them suddenly going out. And suddenly then the physical fleshly side of their beings was all that they could see. And it brought them shame as it never had before. For the first time, you see, they realized that they were naked. So as Satan had very cunningly promised them, they did have some new knowledge. They now knew, this was their new knowledge, they now knew that they were naked. But it was not a good knowledge to have, and it came at a very costly price. They exchanged perfection for imperfection. They exchanged incorruption for corruption. Glory for dishonor, power for weakness, and they exchanged life for death. They not only immediately died spiritually, you know, in their relationship with God, but they also began immediately to die physically. Although it would take them many, many years to die, Adam lived to be 960 or something like that, it would take them many years to die, but they both did die. So having become astutely aware of their guilt and shame, Adam Adam and Eve immediately tried to seek a way to hide their guilt by making themselves aprons of fig leaves. Rather than seeking God and confessing their guilt to him, what did they attempt to do? They attempted to conceal their guilt from both him and from themselves. And this is what Job tells us that they were doing. He says, um, this is Job 31, 33. Have I covered my transgressions as Adam? So we know that's exactly what they were doing. They were trying to hide their transgression, their sin. And this is always the reaction of the person who sins. He will always attempt to hide and cover his sin to keep others from finding out about it. To hide their sin and shame, Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together. And therefore we have here the first attempt of man to cover up his sins by his own works. It's therefore the first example of man-made religion. Because religion is any attempt to clothe ourselves apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. Clothe themselves apart from Christ or from God. They tried to provide themselves with a covering to cloak their guilt and their sins. So fig leaves represent symbolically man's own works and his own efforts to do something to make himself fit for the presence of God. And this is always the way it is of the natural, unregenerate, unsaved man. Conscious that something is wrong, instead of seeking God... He will attempt to seek some kind of shelter behind his own fig leaves of self-righteousness. He will attempt to make his good works counterbalance his sins. But such self-made works of righteousness, according to God, are nothing but filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. They're filthy rags in the sight of God. Church attendance and, and churchianity and religiosity and participation in baptism, you know, apart from faith in Christ and and confirmation and rituals and ceremonies and and tithing and giving money to charities and all kinds of other philanthropic efforts are nothing but fig leaves, which today most people are attempting to sew into aprons to cover their own guilt and shame. But that which man attempts to use to hide his shame bears absolutely no fruit no eternal fruit, and it is doomed to wither and die just as the fig tree which was cursed by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 21, 19. Jesus Christ, when he was here, cursed a fig tree. Why? Because it bore no fruit. And after he cursed it, it withered away. Man's own works, even his religious works, apart from Christ, bear absolutely no fruit. All such human efforts are self-righteousness, and they will wither in the presence of the Lord. You know, after Christ cursed the fig tree, and by the way, the only thing he ever cursed when he was here during his earthly visitation was a fig tree. 
The only tree we know for sure which existed in the Garden of Eden was a fig tree. None of the other trees are mentioned by name. But it's interesting that after Christ did curse the fig tree, he denounced religion. Religion, you see, is a fig leaf which only hides, it only covers over sin. The religious rulers of Israel, and by the way, Israel is symbolized by what in the Bible? A fig tree. The religious rulers of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, were attempting to self-righteously cover themselves in fig leaf aprons, aprons of their own making. But they needed what all men need in order to be acceptable to God which is the garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness, which only God himself can provide when one comes in faith to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's eyes of judgment, you see, penetrate anything which we attempt to cover ourselves with apart from the righteousness of Christ. It says in Psalm 69:5, "O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee." There's no way we can hide our sins from God. No way. No kinds of fig leaves. So let's look quickly and we'll close with this this the departure from Elohim verse 8. After they made their fig leaf aprons, it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We now learn that the self-manufactured fig leaves did not remove their sense of guilt and shame. They didn't work, did they? Because Adam and Eve, when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, hid themselves. So their little aprons didn't do the trick. They no longer felt comfortable fellowshipping with God. He was holy, and they now were acutely aware of the fact that they were not holy. They were unholy. However, we do have to admit this. It is good, it is very good that they did feel their guilt and their shame. Because in guilt, in having guilt and in having shame and in knowing that you have these things, there is hope for salvation. What did the Lord Jesus say? He didn't come to heal those who are well. He came for those who know that they're sick those who know that they're guilty and they have shame for their guilt. So it was good that they did feel their shame. So for the first time since their creation, Adam and Eve feared God. We know they feared God because in verse 10, if you look ahead, Adam told God, I was afraid. Prior to their disobedience, you know, when they ever they heard the voice of God in the garden, that was probably the highlight of the day for them. That was the time when they fellowshiped with God and walked with God. And they probably would look forward to that time of day. That was their quiet time with the Lord. But now they feared him. Guilt and fear usually do go hand in hand. So sin, shame, guilt, and fear had changed the first couple so much in just a moment of time that they no longer could enjoy their beautiful garden home and fellowship with their loving creator. Now, it was apparently the daily habit of God in the person of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who it was his daily habit to fellowship with Adam and Eve. However, this time, instead of running to him, what did they do? They ran and they tried to hide themselves from him. Why was this? Well, it was because they didn't want to face him because of their shame and their guilt. And it's also because they were afraid. Well, what were they afraid of? They were afraid of the consequences of their sin. God had told them that on the day that they would eat of the forbidden fruit, they would what? Surely die. If they had doubted God's words before, which Eve apparently did, at least Eve, they surely knew that now God's words were true because they had already sensed their own spiritual deaths. So to meet him face to face in the garden, for all they knew, could mean their instant physical deaths as well. 
And if God was going to be fair, that's what it should have meant. But we see his grace and mercy come into play. So they were attempted to hide from God, which of course is utterly impossible. Yet it's what people have been trying to do ever since. It's really ironic that men will, just as Adam and Eve, they will not flee from that which is evil. Right? Like she didn't flee from the serpent. But yet they will run from that which is good. They will run from God. Totally the opposite of what it should be. And yet you look out there in the world, that's what most people are doing. People are trying to run from God in a great number of ways. And yet at the same time, they're running straight toward evil. How are they running from God? Well, they're running from him by denying his existence. By pushing thoughts of him out of their minds. By denying the reality of sin and guilt or the conscience. Or by stressing the physical world of technology and science. Or by denying the reality of a spiritual world at all. Or by belittling the Bible. Or by refusing to read the Bible. Or by denying the divine inspiration of the Bible. And by avoiding true born-again believers. And by staying away from gospel-preaching churches. And from Bible studies such as this one, etc., etc., Although people attempt to hide from God just about behind everything and anything imaginable, what is the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is that there is absolutely no way any man can hide from God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You can go into the darkest, most secret place imaginable, and God's eyes are there watching you. It says in Jeremiah 23:24, "Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him?" saith the Lord, "Do not I fill heaven and earth?" I mean, it's foolish to try to hide from God. Even if it were possible to hide from God in this life, which it isn't, yet every single one of us will have to face him one day. Whether it's at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives as Christians, and I hope that you will be there, because only Christians, only those who are saved will be there at the judgment seat of Christ, or all unbelievers and even those who have deceived themselves into thinking they're believers, but they have never truly been born again. That's the saddest case of all. Those who think they are Christians, but they have deceived themselves And they don't really have a personal relationship with Christ. All of those people, non-believers and deceived, quote-unquote, quoting, uh, possessing Christians, will one day stand at the great white throne judgment where they will hear the most tragic words imaginable. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. Please make sure that you will never hear those words. If you are in any way doubting that you are truly saved, please come see me or your leader and let's settle that because I don't want any of you precious women to be there and hear those awful, awful words. Well, with our next lesson, Lord willing, we are going to look for the first time in Scripture at the redemptive attributes the redemptive attributes of our God. We're going to look at his holiness and his grace. Until now, all we have seen in the scripture are those attributes of God which are displayed through his creative works. We've seen, like, you know, his power and his majesty and his glory and his love. But with the fall of man, I mean, now man has fallen. So from here on in, man has fallen. With the fall of man, we will see God's holiness displayed in the fact that he has to deal with sin because he is a holy God. And yet that holiness is mixed, fortunately, with his grace, which we will also see displayed as he, for the first time, not only covers their sin with a temporary cover, you know, when he sheds an animal's blood to get skins to cover them, but when he also then gives them the promise of a coming redeemer who will cover their sins permanently. And that's what we will see in Genesis 3.15. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the patience of your people. 
Thank you for their hunger to know your word. I pray, Lord, that I have truly lifted up Christ this morning and that we have seen him on again on every page of the scripture because it's for him and him alone that we want men to be drawn and we want to magnify him and glorify him and just thank you so much that he was so willing to come here and die for us, to be literally to become sin for us and to become... Um, to partake of the curse for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have so much to be thankful for, Father. And I would just pray in closing that once again, if there is one here among us who is not sure that she is truly saved, that she will settle that very matter this morning by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, I do know you died for my sin. And I ask you to come into my life and my heart and thank you for saving me and now I want to live for you. We pray these things, Lord, again, so that Christ might be glorified. Amen.